Bombay was Bombay until it was Mumbai. Burma was Burma until it was officially Myanmar. Once upon a time, Tokyo was Edo, but that was centuries ago. Zimbabwe and Zambia were North and South Rhodesia. Iraq was Mesopotamia. Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam was Saigon. And before that, it was Prenokor in Cambodia. The Democratic Republic of Congo was Zaire. Sri Lanka was Ceylon until 1972. Istanbul was Constantinople. Beijing was Peking. I could go on. But I'll stop with the South Bronx was the South Bronx until it was so broke. I tell you all this because I want to make being here all that matters. I want our vehicular flow, the road construction, all accidents and delays to be part of what constitutes here. A long time ago, before Jesus, someone said, you need to be responsible for your own passage, all this life, all this living. Congestion will be, is, no matter how much we try to facilitate movement, no matter how much signage directs us. Did you know that the ideal cruising speed is 30 miles per hour? Speed limits are just one example of a traffic calming measure that engineers have come up with. Even they realize our hearts race, though we sit still. That was an excerpt from the play, The Provenance of Beauty, a South Bronx travelogue, which is performed on a bus ride through the Bronx. It was written by poet Claudia Rankine. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born in Kingston, Jamaica, and raised in Kingston and in New York City, Claudia Rankine is an innovative and thoughtful writer, whether she's turning her hand to poetry or to theater. She's the author of some four collections of poetry, including the award-winning Nothing in Nature is Private. Although her book, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, is a multi-genre project that combines poetry, essays, and images, writing for the theater meant a huge leap of faith for her. But what a leap she took. Presented by New York's Foundry Theater and selected for the NEA's New Play Development Project, The Provenance of Beauty is a poetic travelogue performed on a bus traveling through the South Bronx. The audience boards a bus in Spanish Harlem, puts on headphones, and looks and listens for 90 minutes as three narrators, two recorded and one live, reflect upon the sights that pass by the windows places and street corners that generally go unnoticed, from corner stores that have been there for 30 years to theaters that are now churches. These all become characters in a neighborhood that's continuously evolving. It's an evocative and complicated piece of theater that makes the viewer think about what makes a neighborhood a neighborhood and about what we choose to see or not. It's a play that provokes, and I was eager to speak with playwright Claudia Rankine. 
I caught up with her at a writer's conference in Washington, D.C., so you'll occasionally hear a little clatter in the background. I was curious to know how the poet put on the playwright's hat. How did she move from writing poetry to writing a play? Very difficultly. <laughs> you know, I'm almost 50, and to have an invitation come from a completely different field in the middle of your career is amazing. So when Melanie Joseph from The Foundry contacted me and said she had read my last book and would love if I would consent to writing the script for this new play, that she at the time had a vague idea about what she wanted. It was a huge sort of excitement. It was with um, trepidation that I went forward. And it was difficult. I won't say it wasn't. But it was also incredible to move into working in a live genre. Well, the play we should say that we're talking about is The Provenance of Beauty, and it was part of the new play festival at the arena stage. It was originally produced up at the Foundry Theater in New York, and it's quite unusual. So why don't you take us back to actually what happens when one goes to see The Provenance of Beauty? In the original production in New York, the audience arrived at a church in East Harlem and got on a bus, and the bus toured the South Bronx as a way of literally showing the way the landscape has changed in the last 30 years. And so the logistics of putting together a site-specific performance negotiating things like New York City traffic was incredible. It was incredible and um, frustrating and marvelous. So people would get on the bus and they would put on headsets. Oh, that's correct, yeah. And there'd be a live narrator in the bus with them. And then there were two taped voices who were also making observations. Why the decision to use the headsets? The decision to use the headsets came because of the poetry, actually, because the the text was so intimate, and there were no characters outside of the characterization of the Bronx and the voice speaking from the landscape, which is how sort of I imagined it. And Melanie's directorial note was that If that's the case, if we're working from inside a single voice, then that voice should be made intimate. And so we decided on the the headsets as a way of locking down the space. I guess my question is, what was your relationship with the Bronx? Did you live in the Bronx? I grew up in the Bronx, but not in the South Bronx. I was born in Jamaica. My parents are New York City immigrants who came over in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and we moved to the North Bronx. I went to Cardinals Pullman High School, where Soda Sotomayor actually also went. And my best friend. And your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) But I lived in the North Bronx in a West Indian community very close to New Rochelle. I had never been to the South Bronx because while I was growing up, it had the reputation of being incredibly dangerous. And so it was not a landscape I knew. Did Melanie know the South Bronx? Melanie did not know the South Bronx either. Okay, so why the decision to focus on the South Bronx? When Melanie contacted me, she said, I would love to do a tour of a neighborhood in the city. 
I know, in her words, she said, I know I don't want to do Manhattan, so let's go and look at some neighborhoods. At the time, I thought, well, I could write something about growing up in the North Bronx, and so that's where I thought we were going. But logistically, to get an audience from Manhattan to the North Bronx just took too much time. And we found ourselves constantly in our drives ending up in the South Bronx, talking to people in the South Bronx, and then becoming fascinated by the history of the South Bronx. And so that's how we ended up in the South Bronx, logistically and also just in terms of the explosive nature of its history. We just gravitated there. And how did you work out the idea? I mean, was there an aha moment when you said, let's put people in a bus and make it a poetic travelogue? I think there was a commitment by Melanie Joseph to do a site-specific piece. And the only way to get them there was through the bus. Because I think she didn't want it in a theater. So that was something I think she knew going in. I think she had been thinking about this before she even contacted me. The part that I played, I think, was more in allowing us to to find the landscape. But I think logistically, the idea of a tour was something that was in her mind from the very beginning. She was committed to bringing the audience to the space, as in the live space in the neighborhood. You know what struck me is that you're a poet, which, even though you've done a lot of collaborative work, it does tend to be more solitary, where you really have a great deal of control over the outcome. And here you take on theater, which is not only extraordinarily collaborative, but in this case, so unpredictable, because you're putting people in a bus, and the bus is driving to the South Bronx and around the South Bronx. So as you point out, you have no idea what's going to happen with traffic. And even as you're directing people, pointing out sites along the way, you don't know what's going to be going on on the street on any particular day. So the difference must have been extraordinary. It was and it wasn't, because in a certain way, the way I put together books has to do with thinking about how to orchestrate the experience of reading which means that I try and build into the text places where the mind can wander. And I often work interdisciplinary and their, their images and text. And I want the reader to be able to go away and come back. So having a chance to have this thing literalized in the real world was amazing because it, it sort of lined up with how I actually feel being in the text should work except it was a live experience. And all of a sudden now, the text is going, but what happens outside the window of the bus could take the audience member away in terms of following X person down the street. So it was a a kind of nice marriage, actually, in terms of a a kind of intellectual idea meeting the world. (laughs) As you said, because you didn't know the South Bronx that well. I would imagine you needed to do a certain amount of research. What did that involve? The Foundry did, and by that I mean Melanie Sunder, they did an incredible job setting up interviews with people who have lived their entire lives in the South Bronx. So for the first year, I would fly, I live in LA, I would fly in and meet with people, and they would take us on tours 
in their cars of places that were meaningful to them. And so we spent days just driving around with people who have lived there forever and, you know, listening to them talk about why X place was meaningful and what had happened here and how it had changed over the years. And uh, alongside that, I also read a lot of books on city planning, on um, Moses's building of the Berkner Boulevard, all of that kind of stuff obviously went on. But the more interesting for me was actually meeting people who had lived in the neighborhood. I think part of the question that's being asked in this is what creates a neighborhood? So I'm going to put it to you. It was partly what creates a neighborhood, but also for me the question was how much should we expect change not to occur? Is the the changing of the neighborhood part of its natural life? Or is fighting against, say, something like gentrification a fight you do because of course there are things you want to hold on to, but is it part of the cycle of the change of a neighborhood? And does it bring things that maybe benefits everyone? Is it necessarily a necessary evil? So those kinds of questions, keeping those floating and in the air, were sort of the things that kept me involved in the writing of the text. I think you're also coming to grips with how People shape the landscape, but landscape shape the people, and this relationship that forms, Mm -hmm. that's almost impossible to unravel. Exactly, that it's a live space. I mean, when people talk about the global city now, and you think about Manhattan, one of the things that I think makes them sad is the the sense that the space has been um, co-opted and commercialized to a point where it doesn't move, where everything becomes the same. And then that kind of push and pull that happens between who lives there and what's happening in the storefronts and in the streets slows down to a commercial standstill. So, yeah, yeah. I am a New Yorker, and I visit the city often, and there are football fields of difference between making it safe and making it homogenous. Right. You know, that is a problem. That gentrification has been tied to a kind of homogeneous planning that loses the, the interaction between the moving of the populations that, you know, move through New York. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I think it gets locked down because at a certain point, if it costs X amount, then it is exclusive to a certain population. Who's the audience for your play, The Provenance of Beauty? Who were you thinking of when you wrote it? Well, I think that there are two things I hope happens for the viewer, the audience member. On the one hand, we're saying, look, the South Bronx has gone through an incredible history and sort of come out on the other side of it in a way that is glorious. But we're also saying, you know, the fight doesn't stop there because if you have been there and held on to your housing and renovated, you might lose it if all you're motivated by is money. You know, if people start coming in and buying up houses, you're going to lose this neighborhood and it belongs to you. And nobody should tell people they shouldn't be able to move if they don't want to move. But there is, I think, I think the piece was directed not just 
from the outside. It was directed also to the population that lives there. And asking them to think about their choices, in a sense. So it, it was not purely a piece directed at sort of outsiders to say, do not come here and gentrify this neighborhood. That's going to happen anyway. But it was also talking to the neighborhood. Well, you called it, in, I think, an article, you said it was a place that's been persecuted by representation. And it would seem that that would place a particular burden on you to not do that, but to try and, and be clearer. Well, that was the difficulty writing this piece. The The point of view issues were incredible because, you know, I am a black person, Melanie is a white person, the population in the South Bronx, majority Dominican, Puerto Rican. And so you you don't want to speak for anyone and you don't want to be put in a place where you're misrepresenting, which is one of the reasons why we landed on a kind of historical point of view and the landscape, so that we weren't actually putting words in anybody's mouth and just talking about the transformation of the space as a place to live. But it was difficult. We had difficulty in terms of the actress. Should she be white? Initially, we had a white actress because we thought she represented the potential future of gentrification. But when we put her on the bus and went through the streets, the difference between this white actress and the people on the street was stark. And it made it seem as if we were pointing. And we actually wanted to kind of be included. And so then we changed actress to be somebody who could be of the neighborhood and then mic'd the bus so that the sounds of the neighborhood came in to the bus through the earphones. And that way we tried to dissolve the walls of the bus so that as much as we could, we became a part of this landscape. And Sarah Hayen. Sarah Hayen was the actress. actress. And she's wonderful. She's incredible. What a voice. Incredible. And I think the New York Times called her affable. And she's amazing. I mean, she, she was, she was, she's an incredible actress and, and I think was able to move into the places where the text took on the voice of the neighborhood as individuals and then move back out into a generalized voice in a way that was incredibly believable. Yeah, we owe a lot to Sarah Hayen for her performance. I'd like to talk for a moment about the title, The Provenance of Beauty. It's quite unusual, and it sent me running to the dictionary to make sure I really did know what provenance meant, and it it, it implies a kind of ownership. Talk about that choice and and what you wanted to convey with that title. I realized that the title seemed a little highfalutin and distant, but I wanted that sense that floating above the life on the street was different ways in which the landscape was determined by who owned it, by who was invested in it, by who stood to gain from it. And so I wanted a title that showed the passing of ownership from one group to another, from one developer to another Etc. But then, I mean, because it's interesting just in thinking about this, there's the investment of lives of people who are actually living there yes. and what they invest by living there. Right, exactly. And that also trumps everything. 
in the end. There's a line from the play that says, I am built out of lives. And ultimately, despite the ownership, despite the decisions around what should be where and what boulevard should break up what neighborhood, you still have a thriving community because people stay and they live there and they have made their lives and grown up their children and had their jobs and had their homes. And so I hope that ultimately the play communicates that that wins out in the end. Let's talk just briefly about the relationship between form and content in your work, because that's very, very crucial to your poetry and clearly to this theater piece. There is no form of that content, for one, I think. I, I, I really believe that the content determines the form, so that our commitment to showing this neighborhood, bringing everyone sort of up to date had to do with why it had to be site-specific, why the bus had to go through the streets so that we could actually see, see what had happened between then and now. And, but that it's true for everything I do. I don't think that you can move forward successfully unless whatever it is you're talking about adapts itself to the vessel that it's in. So, you know, I've asked Melanie why she thought to invite me to work on this. And she said, because your books are theatrical. And I think, in a sense, I am very interested in the ways in which things perform themselves. And when I attempt to write about it, whatever it is, I want it to enact itself. And that's why I'm very sensitive to what form the content takes. Well, your last book, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American Lyric, the title is so beautiful. And Thank you. the book itself is so evocative. It's, it's poetry, prose, but as you point out, you direct people by using TV stills, for example, at various points throughout the book. And it seems, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you can see the trajectory between that book and the theater piece that you produced. Yes, and thank you. You know, someone who spends as much time reading as I do, I think I'm very sensitive about the perception that reading is passive. You know, I really I really feel like reading is a very active thing. And as a reader, I'm very aware of the ways in which I move around a text and the places where my imagination is allowed to kind of go away and come back and how much time it takes me to kind of settle in. And so when I put together books, I think about those things. And I think about giving time. It's almost like listening. That reading is a kind of listening. And it's also a kind of seeing and a kind of remembering. And all of those things are constantly in play as you are taking in this text. And so I'm working on a new, a new book now, and in the back I'm putting a list that is entitled In Conversation With, where I will list all of the people who gave me the idea or said the phrase that found its way into the text. Because there's also that sense, and I think this has come out of working on the play, that sense that actually 
all of thinking is collaborative and you're constantly in community pulling from those around you. And so the sense that the writer is alone, actually the writer is not alone. The writer all day long is listening and taking and reading and taking and considering and taking, and it's finding its way back into the text. And so I thought it might be interesting to kind of locate in the text the places that came out of, say, our discussion right now. I really look forward to that. Claudia, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was poet and playwright Claudia Rankine. We were talking about her work, The Provenance of Beauty. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from The Provenance of Beauty, used courtesy of Claudia Rankine and the Foundry Theater. Excerpts from Shoeshine, composed by Marlies Simmons and Ray Alvarez, performed by Bioritmo at the Salsa y Toros Festival, Docs, France, 2011. Use courtesy of Bioritmo. Special thanks to Jim Byers of WPFW's The Latin Flavor. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, NEA jazz master Delfeo Marsalis. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Oh,